Notes from the Underground by Fyodor Dostoevsky Apropos of the Wet Snow Part 3 This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Bob Neufeld. Somewhere behind a screen a clock began wheezing, as though oppressed by something, as though someone were strangling it. After an unnaturally prolonged wheezing there followed a shrill, nasty, and, as it were, unexpectedly rapid chime, as though someone were suddenly jumping forward. It struck two. I woke up, though I had indeed not been asleep, but lying half-conscious. It was almost completely dark in the narrow, cramped, low-pitched room, cumbered up with an enormous wardrobe and piles of cardboard boxes and all sorts of frippery and litter. The candle-end that had been burning on the table was going out, and gave a faint flicker from time to time. In a few minutes there would be complete darkness. I was not long in coming to myself. Everything came back to my mind at once, without an effort, as though it had been in ambush to pounce upon me again. And indeed, even while I was unconscious, a point seemed continually to remain in my memory unforgotten, and round it my dreams moved drearily. But strange to say, everything that had happened to me in that day seemed to be now, on waking, to be in the far, far away past, as though I had long, long ago lived all that down. My head was full of fumes. Something seemed to be hovering over me, rousing me, exciting me, and making me restless. Misery and spite seemed surging up in me again, and seeking an outlet. Suddenly I saw beside me two wide-open eyes, scrutinizing me curiously and persistently. The look in those eyes was coldly detached, sullen, as it were utterly remote. It weighed upon me. A grim idea came into my brain and passed all over my body as a horrible sensation, such as one feels when one goes into a damp and mouldy cellar. There was something unnatural in those two eyes, beginning to look at me only now. I recalled, too, that during those two hours I had not said a single word to this creature, and had, in fact, considered it utterly superfluous. In fact, the silence had for some reason gratified me now I suddenly realized vividly the hideous idea, revolting as a spider, of vice, which without love grossly and shamelessly begins with that in which true love finds its consummation. For a long time we gazed at each other like that, but she did not drop her eyes before mine, and her expression did not change, so that at last I felt uncomfortable. "'What is your name?' I asked abruptly, to put an end to it. "'Liza,' she answered, almost in a whisper, but somehow far more graciously, and she turned her eyes away. I was silent. "'What weather! The snow! It's disgusting!' I said, almost to myself, putting my arm under my head despondently and gazing at the ceiling. She made no answer. This was horrible. "'Have you always lived in Petersburg?' I asked a minute later, almost angrily, turning my head slightly towards her. "'No. Where do you come from?' "'From Riga,' 
she answered reluctantly. "'Are you a German?' "'No, Russian.' "'Have you been here long?' "'Where?' "'In this house.' "'A fortnight.' She spoke more and more jerkily. The candle went out. I could no longer distinguish her face. "'Have you a father and a mother?' "'Yes. No. Uh, I have.' "'Where are they?' "'There, in Riga.' "'What are they?' "'Oh, nothing. Nothing. Why, what class are they?' "'Tradespeople. Have you always lived with them?' "'Yes. How old are you?' Twenty. Why did you leave them? Oh, for no reason. That answer meant, let me alone. I feel sick, sad. We were silent. God knows why I did not go away. I felt myself more and more sick and dreary. The images of the previous day began of themselves, apart from my will, flitting through my memory in confusion. I suddenly recalled something I had seen that morning when, full of anxious thoughts, I was hurrying to the office. I saw them carrying a coffin out yesterday, and they nearly dropped it, I suddenly said aloud, not that I desired to open the conversation, but, as it were, by accident. A coffin? Yes, in the haymarket. They were bringing it out of a cellar. From a cellar? Oh, not from a cellar, but a basement, oh, you know, down below, from a house of ill-fame. It was filthy all around, eggshells, litter, a stench. It was loathsome. Silence. A nasty day to be buried, I began, simply to avoid being silent. Nasty? In what way? Oh, the snow, the wet. I yawned. "'It makes no difference,' she said suddenly, after a brief silence. "'No, it's horrid.' I yawned again. The grave-diggers must have sworn at getting drenched by the snow, and there must have been water in the grave. "'Why water in the grave?' she asked, with a sort of curiosity, but speaking even more harshly and abruptly than before. I suddenly began to feel provoked. Why, there must have been water at the bottom a foot deep. You can't dig a dry grave in Volkovo Cemetery. Why? Why, the place is waterlogged. It's a regular marsh. So they bury them in water. I've seen it myself many times. I had never seen it once. Indeed, I had never been in Volkovo, and had only heard stories of it. Do you mean to say you don't mind how you die? But... "'Why should I die?' she answered, as though defending herself. "'Why, some day you will die, and you will die just the same as that dead woman. She was—she was—a girl like you. She died of consumption. A wench would have died in hospital. She knows all about it already. She said wench, not girl.' "'She was in debt to her madam,' I retorted more and more provoked by the discussion, and went on earning money for her up to the end, though she was in consumption. Some sledge-drivers standing by were talking about her to some soldiers and telling them so. No doubt they knew her. They were laughing. They were going to meet in a pot-house to drink to her memory. A great deal of this was my invention. 
Silence followed, profound silence. She did not stir. And is it better to die in a hospital? Isn't it just the same? Besides, why should I die? she added irritably. If not now, a little later. Why a little later? Why, indeed? Now you are young, pretty, fresh, you fetch a high price. But after another year of this life you will be very different. You will go off. In a year? Oh, anyway, in a year you will be worth less, I continued malignantly. You will go from here to something lower, another house. A year later, to a third, lower and lower, and in seven years you will come to a basement in the haymarket. That will be if you were lucky, but it would be much worse if you got some disease, consumption, say, or caught a chill, or something or other. It's not easy to get over an illness in your way of life. If you catch anything, you may not get rid of it. And so you would die. Well, well, then I shall die, she answered quite vindictively, and she made a quick movement. But one is sorry. Sorry for whom? Sorry for life. Silence. Have you been engaged to be married? Huh? What's that to you? Oh, I'm, I'm not cross-examining you. It's nothing to me. Why are you so cross? Of course you may have had your own troubles. What is it to me? It's simply that I felt sorry. Sorry for whom? Sorry for you. No need, she whispered hardly audibly, and again made a faint movement. That incensed me at once. What? I was so gentle with her, and she— Why? Do you think that you are on the right path? I don't think anything. That's what's wrong, that you don't think. Realize it while there is still time. There still is time. You are still young, good-looking. You might love, be married, be happy. Not all married women are happy, she snapped out in the rude, abrupt tone she had used at first. Not all, of course, but anyway it is much better than the life here, infinitely better. Besides, with love one can live even without happiness. Even in sorrow life is sweet. Life is sweet, however one lives. But here what is there but foulness? <laughs> I turned away with disgust. I was no longer reasoning coldly. I began to feel myself what I was saying, and warmed to the subject. I was already longing to expound the cherished ideas I had brooded over in my corner. Something suddenly flared up in me. An object had appeared before me. Never mind my being here. I am not an example for you. I am, perhaps, worse than you are. I was drunk when I came here, though. I hastened, however, to say in self-defense. Besides, a man is no example for a woman. It's a different thing. I may degrade and defile myself, but I am not any one's slave. I come and go, and that's an end of it. I shake it off, and I'm a different man. But you are a slave from the start. Yes, a slave. You give up everything, your whole freedom. If you want to break your chains afterwards, you won't be able to. You will be more and more fast in the snares. It is an accursed bondage, I know it. 
I won't speak of anything else. Maybe you won't understand. But tell me. No doubt you are in debt to your madam. There, you see, I added, though she made no answer, but only listened in silence, entirely absorbed. That's a bondage for you. You will never buy your freedom. They will see to that. It's like selling your soul to the devil. And besides, perhaps I too am just as unlucky, how do you know, and wallow in the mud on purpose, out of misery. You know men take to drink from grief. Well, maybe I am here from grief. Come, tell me, what is their good here? Here you and I came together just now, and did not say one word to one another all the time, and it was only afterwards you began staring at me like a wild creature, and I at you. Is that loving? Is that how one human being should meet another? It's hideous, that's what it is. Yes, she assented sharply and hurriedly. I was positively astounded by the promptitude of this yes. So the same thought may have been straying through her mind when she was staring at me just before. So she, too, was capable of certain thoughts. Damn it all! This was interesting. This was a point of likeness, I thought, almost rubbing my hands. And indeed it's easy to turn a young soul like that. It was the exercise of my power that attracted me most. She turned her head nearer to me, and it seemed to me in the darkness that she propped herself on her arm. Perhaps she was scrutinizing me. How I regretted that I could not see her eyes. I heard her deep breathing. "'Why have you come here?' I asked her, with a note of authority already in my voice. "'Oh, I don't know.' but how nice it would be to be living in your father's house it's warm and free you have a home of your own oh but what if it's worse than this i must take the right tone flashed through my mind i may not get far with sentimentality but it was only a momentary thought i swear she really did interest me besides i was exhausted and moody and cunning so easily goes hand in hand with feeling who denies it i hasten to answer anything may happen i am convinced that some one has wronged you and that you are more sinned against than sinning of course i know nothing of your story but it's not likely a girl like you has come here of her own inclination a girl like me she whispered hardly audibly but i heard it Damn it all! I was flattering her. That was horrid. But perhaps it was a good thing. She was silent. See, Liza, I will tell you about myself. If I had had a home from childhood, I shouldn't be what I am now. I often think that. However bad it may be at home, anyway, they are your father and mother, and not enemies, strangers. Once a year at least they'll show their love of you. Anyway, you know, you are at home. I grow up without a home, and perhaps that's why I've turned so unfeeling. I waited again. Perhaps she doesn't understand, I thought, and indeed it is absurd. It's moralizing. If I were a father and had a daughter, 
I believe I should love my daughter more than my sons, really. I began indirectly, as though talking of something else to distract her attention. I must confess I blushed. Why so? she asked. Ah, so she was listening. I don't know, Liza. I knew a father who was a stern, austere man, but used to go down on his knees to his daughter, used to kiss her hands, her feet. He couldn't make enough of her, really. When she danced at parties, he used to stand for five hours at a stretch, gazing at her. He was mad over her. I understand that. She would fall asleep tired at night, and he would wake to kiss her in her sleep and make the sign of the cross over her. He would go about in a dirty old coat. He was stingy to everyone else, but would spend his last penny for her, giving her expensive presents, and it was his greatest delight when she was pleased with what he gave her. Fathers always love their daughters more than their mothers do. Some girls live happily at home, and I believe I should never let my daughters marry. What next? she said with a faint smile. I should be jealous, I really should, to think that she would kiss anyone else, that she would love a stranger more than her father. It's painful to imagine it. Of course, that's all nonsense. Of course, every father would be reasonable at last. But I believe before I should let her marry, I should worry myself to death. I should find fault with all her suitors. But I should end by letting her marry whom she herself loved. The one whom the daughter loves always seems the worst to the father, you know. That is always so. So many family troubles come from that. Some are glad to sell their daughters rather than marrying them honorably. Ah, so that was it. Such a thing, Liza, happens in those accursed families in which there is neither love nor God, I retorted warmly, and where there is no love there is no sense either. There are such families, it's true, but I'm not speaking of them. You must have seen wickedness in your own family, if you talk like that. Truly, you must have been unlucky. Hmm. That sort of thing mostly comes about through poverty. And is it any better with the gentry, even among the poor, honest people who live happily? Hmm. Yes, perhaps. Another thing, Liza. Man is fond of reckoning up his troubles but does not count his joys. If he counted them up as he ought, he would see that every lot has enough happiness provided for it. And what if all goes well with the family, if the blessing of God is upon it, if the husband is a good one, loves you, cherishes you, never leaves you? There is happiness in such a family. Even sometimes there is happiness in the midst of sorrow, and indeed sorrow is everywhere. If you marry, you will find out for yourself. But think of the first years of married life with one you love. What happiness, what happiness there sometimes is in it. And indeed, it's the ordinary thing. In those early days, even quarrels with one's husband end happily. Some women get up quarrels with their husbands just because they love them. Indeed, I knew a woman like that. She seemed to say that because she loved him, she would torment him and make him feel it. You know that you may torment a man on purpose through love. Women are particularly given to that, thinking to themselves, I will love him so, I will make so much of him afterwards, 
that it is no sin to torment him a little now. And all in the house rejoice in the sight of you, and you are happy and gay and peaceful and honorable. Then there are some women who are jealous. If he went off anywhere, I knew one such woman, she couldn't restrain herself, but would jump up at night and run off on the sly to find out where he was, whether he was with some other woman. That's a pity. And the woman knows herself it's wrong, and her heart fails her, and she suffers. But she loves. It's all through love. And how sweet it is to make up after quarrels, to own herself in the wrong, or to forgive him and they both are so happy all at once, as though they had met anew, been married over again, as though their love had begun afresh. And no one, no one should know what passes between husband and wife if they love one another, and whatever quarrels there may be between them, they ought not to call in their own mother to judge between them, and tell tales of one another. They are their own judges." love is a holy mystery and ought to be hidden from all other eyes whatever happens that makes it holier and better they respect one another more and much is built on respect and if once there has been love if they have been married for love why should love pass away surely one can keep it it is rare that one cannot keep love if the husband is kind and straightforward why should not love last? A first phase of merry love will pass, it is true, but then there will come a love that is better still. Then there will be the union of souls, they will have everything in common, there will be no secrets between them, and once they have children, the most difficult times will seem to them happy, so long as there is love and courage. Even toil will be a joy you may deny yourself bread for your children and even that will be a joy they will love you for it afterwards so you are laying by for your future as the children grow up you feel that you are an example a support for them that even after you die your children will always keep your thoughts and feelings because they have received them from you they will take on your semblance and likeness so you see this is a great duty how can it fail to draw the father and mother nearer people say it's a trial to have children who says that it is heavenly happiness are you fond of little children liza i am awfully fond of them you know a little rosy baby boy at your bosom and what husband's heart is not touched seeing his wife nursing his child a plump little rosy baby sprawling and snuggling chubby little hands and feet clean tiny little nails so tiny that it makes one laugh to look at them eyes that look as if they understand everything and while it sucks it clutches at your bosom with its little hand it plays when its father comes up the child tears itself away from the bosom flings itself back looks at its father laughs as though it were fearfully funny and falls to sucking again or it will bite its mother's breast when its little teeth are coming while it looks sideways at her with its little eyes as though to say look i am biting is not all that happiness when they are the three together husband wife and child one can forgive a great deal for the sake of such moments yes liza 
one must first learn to live oneself before one blames others. It's by pictures. Pictures like that one must get at you, I thought to myself, though I did speak with real feeling, and all at once I flushed crimson. What if she were suddenly to burst out laughing? What should I do then? That idea drove me to fury. Towards the end of my speech I really was excited, and now my vanity was somehow wounded. The silence continued. I almost nudged her. "'Why are you—' she began and stopped. But I understood. There was a quiver of something different in her voice, not abrupt, harsh, and unyielding as before, but something soft and shamefaced, so shamefaced that I suddenly felt ashamed and guilty. "'What?' I asked, with tender curiosity. "'Why, you—what?' "'Why, you speak somehow like a book,' she said, and again there was a note of irony in her voice. That remark sent a pang to my heart. It was not what I was expecting. I did not understand that she was hiding her feelings under irony, that this is usually the last refuge of modest and chaste-souled people, when the privacy of their soul is coarsely and intrusively invaded and that their pride makes them refuse to surrender to the last moment, and shrink from giving expression to their feelings before you. I ought to have guessed the truth from the timidity with which she had repeatedly approached her sarcasm, only bringing herself to utter it at last with an effort. But I did not guess, and an evil feeling took possession of me. "'Wait a bit,' I thought. Seven. Oh, hush, Liza! How can you talk about being like a book when it makes even me, an outsider, feel sick? Though I don't look at it as an outsider, for indeed it touches me to the heart. Is it possible that you do not feel sick at being here yourself? Evidently, habit does wonders. God knows what habit can do with anyone. Can you seriously think that you will never grow old? that you will always be good-looking, and that they will keep you here for ever and ever? I say nothing of the loathsomeness of the life here, though let me tell you this about it, about your present life, I mean. Here, though you are young now, attractive, nice, with soul and feeling, yet you know, as soon as I came to myself just now, I felt at once sick at being here with you. And one can only come here when one is drunk but if you were anywhere else, living as good people live, I should perhaps be more than attracted by you, should fall in love with you, should be glad of a look from you, let alone a word. I should hang about your door, should go down on my knees to you, should look upon you as my betrothed, and think it an honour to be allowed to. I should not dare to have an impure thought about you. But here, you see, I know that I have only to whistle, and you have to come with me whether you like it or not. I don't consult your wishes, but you mine. The lowest laborer hires himself as a workman, but he doesn't make a slave of himself altogether. Besides, he knows that he will be free again presently. But when are you free? Only think what you are giving up here. What is it you are making a slave of? It is your soul, together with your body. You are selling your soul, which you have no right to dispose of, 
you give your love to be outraged by every drunkard. Love. But that's everything, you know. It's a priceless diamond. It's a maiden's treasure, love. Why, a man should be ready to give his soul, to face death to gain that love. But how much is your love worth now? You are sold, all of you, body and soul, and there is no need to strive for love when you can have everything without love. And you know there is no greater insult to a girl than that. Do you understand? To be sure, I have heard that they comfort you, poor fools, that they let you have lovers of your own here. But you know that's simply a farce, that's simply a sham. It's just laughing at you, and you are taken in by it. Why, do you suppose he really loves you, that lover of yours? I don't believe it. How can he love you when he knows you may be called away from him any minute? He would be a low fellow if he did. Will he have a grain of respect for you? What have you in common with him? He laughs at you and rubs you. That is all his love amounts to. You are lucky if he does not beat you. Very likely he does beat you, too. Ask him, if you have got one, whether he will marry you. He will laugh in your face if he doesn't spit in it or give you a blow, though maybe he is not worth a bad halfpenny himself. And for what have you ruined your life, if you come to think of it? For the coffee they give you to drink and the plentiful meals? But with what object are they feeding you up? An honest girl couldn't swallow the food, for she would know what she was being fed for. You are in debt here and of course you will always be in debt and you will go on in debt to the end till the visitors here begin to scorn you and that will soon happen don't rely upon your youth all that flies by express train here do you know you will be kicked out and not simply kicked out long before that she'll begin nagging at you scolding you abusing you as though you had not sacrificed your health for her, had not thrown away your youth and your soul for her benefit, but as though you had ruined her, beggared her, robbed her. And don't expect anyone to take your part. The others, your companions, will attack you too, win her favor, for all are in slavery here, and have lost all conscience and pity here long ago. They have become utterly vile, and nothing on earth is viler, more loathsome, and more insulting than their abuse. And you are laying down everything here, unconditionally, youth and health and beauty and hope. And at twenty-two you will look like a woman of five and thirty, and you will be lucky if you're not diseased. Pray to God for that. No doubt you are thinking now that you have a gay time and no work to do. Yet there is no work harder or more dreadful in the world, or ever has been. One would think that the heart alone would be worn out with tears, and you won't dare to say a word, not half a word, when they drive you away from here. You will go away as though you were to blame. You will change to another house, then to a third, then somewhere else, till you come down at last to the haymarket. There you will be beaten at every turn. That is good manners there. The visitors don't know how to be friendly without beating you. 
You don't believe that is so hateful there? Go and look for yourself some time. You can see with your own eyes. Once, one New Year's Day, I saw a woman at her door. They had turned her out as a joke to give her a taste of the frost because she had been crying so much, and they shut the door behind her. At nine o'clock in the morning she was already quite drunk, dishevelled, half-naked, covered with bruises. Her face was powdered, but she had a black eye. Blood was trickling from her nose and her teeth. Some cabman had just given her a drubbing. She was sitting on the stone steps. A salt-fish of some sort was in her hand. She was crying, wailing something about her luck, and beating with the fish on the steps and cabmen and drunken soldiers were crowding in the doorway, taunting her. "'You don't believe that you will ever be like that? I should be sorry to believe it, too. But how do you know? Maybe ten years, eight years ago, that very woman with the salt-fish came here, fresh as a cherub, innocent, pure, knowing no evil, blushing at every word. Perhaps she was like you, proud, ready to take offence, not like the others.' Perhaps she looked like a queen, and knew what happiness was in store for the man who should love her, and whom she should love. Do you see how it ended? And what if, at that very minute, when she was beating on the filthy steps with that fish, drunken and dishevelled, what if, at that very minute, she recalled the pure early days in her father's house, when she used to go to school, and the neighbor's son watched for her on the way? declaring that he would love her as long as he lived, that he would devote his life to her, and when they vowed to love one another forever and be married as soon as they were grown up. No, Liza, it would be happy for you if you were to die soon of consumption in some corner, in some cellar like that woman just now. In the hospital, do you say? You will be lucky if they take you. But— what if you are still of use to the madam here? Consumption is a queer disease. It is not like fever. The patient goes on hoping till the last minute, and says he is all right. He deludes himself, and that just suits your madam. Don't doubt it. That's how it is. You have sold your soul, and what is more, you owe money, so you daren't say a word. But when you are dying— all will abandon you, all will turn away from you, for then there will be nothing to get from you. What's more, they will reproach you for cumbering the place, for being so long over dying. However you beg, you won't get a drink of water without abuse. Whenever are you going off, you nasty hussy? You won't let us sleep with your moaning. You make the gentleman sick. That's true. I have heard such things said myself. They will thrust you dying into the filthiest corner in the cellar, in the damp and darkness. What will your thoughts be, lying there alone? When you die, strange hands will lay you out, with grumbling and impatience. No one will bless you, no one will sigh for you. They only want to get rid of you as soon as may be. They will buy a coffin, take you to the grave as they did that poor woman today, and celebrate your memory at the tavern. In the grave, sleet, filth, wet snow. No need to put themselves out for you. Let her down, Vanuha. It's just like her luck. Even here she is head foremost, the hussy. 
shorten the cord you rascal it's all right as it is all right is it why she's on her side she was a fellow-creature after all but never mind throw the earth on her they won't care to waste much time quarrelling over you they will scatter the wet blue clay as quick as they can and go off to the tavern and there your memory on earth will end other women have children to go to their graves fathers husbands while for you neither tear nor sigh nor remembrance no one in the whole world will ever come to you your name will vanish from the face of the earth as though you had never existed never been born at all nothing but filth and mud however you knock at your coffin lid at night when the dead arise however you cry let me out kind people to live in the light of day my life was no life at all my life has been thrown away like a dishclout it was drunk away in the tavern at the haymarket let me out kind people to live in the world again and i worked myself up to such a pitch that i began to have a lump in my throat myself and and all at once i stopped sat up in dismay and bending over apprehensively began to listen with a beating heart i had reason to be troubled i had felt for some time that i was turning her soul upside down and rending her heart and and the more i was convinced of it the more eagerly i desired to gain my object as quickly and as effectually as possible it was the exercise of my skill that carried me away yet it was not merely sport i knew i was speaking stiffly artificially even bookishly in fact i could not speak except like a book but that did not trouble me i knew i felt that i should be understood and that this very bookishness might be an assistance but now having attained my effect i was suddenly panic-stricken never before had i witnessed such despair she was lying on her face thrusting her face into the pillow and clutching it with both hands her heart was being torn her youthful body was shuddering all over as though in convulsions suppressed sobs rent her bosom and suddenly burst out in weeping and wailing then she pressed closer into the pillow she did not want any one here not a living soul to know of her anguish and her tears she bit the pillow bit her hand till it bled i saw that afterwards or thrusting her fingers into her dishevelled hair seemed rigid with the effort of restraint holding her breath and clenching her teeth i began saying something begging her to calm herself but felt that i did not dare and all at once in a sort of cold shiver almost in terror began fumbling in the dark trying hurriedly to get dressed to go it was dark though i tried my best i could not finish dressing quickly suddenly i felt a box of matches and a candlestick with a whole candle in it as soon as the room was lighted up liza sprang up sat up in bed and with a contorted face with a half-insane smile looked at me almost senselessly i sat down beside her and took her hands she came to herself made an impulsive movement towards me would have caught hold of me but did not dare and slowly bowed her head before me liza my dear i was wrong forgive me my dear i began but she squeezed my hand in her fingers so tightly 
that I felt I was saying the wrong thing and stopped. This is my address, Liza. Come to me. I will come, she answered resolutely, her head still bow. But now I am going. Good-bye, till we meet again. I got up. She, too, stood up, and suddenly flushed all over, gave a shudder, snatched up a shawl that was lying on a chair, and muffled herself in it to her chin. As she did this, she gave another sickly smile, blushed, and looked at me strangely. I felt wretched. I was in haste to get away, to disappear. "'Wait a minute,' she said suddenly, in the passage just at the doorway, stopping me with her hand on my overcoat. She put down the candle in hot haste and ran off. Evidently she had thought of something, or wanted to show me something. As she ran away, she flushed, her eyes shone, and there was a smile on her lips. What was the meaning of it? Against my will I waited. She came back a minute later with an expression that seemed to ask forgiveness for something. In fact, it was not the same face, not the same look as the evening before, sullen, mistrustful, and obstinate. Her eyes now were imploring, soft, and at the same time trustful, caressing, timid. The expression with which children look at people they are very fond of, of whom they are asking a favor. Her eyes were a light hazel. They were lovely eyes, full of life, and capable of expressing love as well as sullen hatred. Making no explanation, as though I, as a sort of higher being, must understand everything without explanations, she held out a piece of paper to me. Her whole face was positively beaming at that instant with naive, almost childish triumph. I unfolded it. It was a letter to her from a medical student, or someone of that sort. A very high-flown and flowery, but extremely respectful love-letter. I don't recall the words now, but I remember well that through the high-flown phrases there was apparent a genuine feeling which cannot be feigned. When I had finished reading it, I met her glowing, questioning, and childishly impatient eyes fixed upon me. She fastened her eyes upon my face and waited impatiently for what I should say. In a few words, hurriedly, but with a sort of joy and pride, she explained to me that she had been to a dance somewhere in a private house, a family of very nice people, who knew nothing, absolutely nothing, for she had only come here so lately, and it had all happened, and she hadn't made up her mind to stay, and was certainly going away as soon as she had paid her debt. And at that party there had been the student who had danced with her all the evening. He had talked to her, and it turned out that he had known her in old days at Riga when he was a child. They had played together, but a very long time ago, and he knew her parents. But about this he knew nothing, nothing whatever, and had no suspicion. And the day after the dance, three days ago, he had sent her that letter through the friend with whom she had gone to the party. And, well, that was all. She dropped her shining eyes with a sort of bashfulness as she finished. The poor girl was keeping that student's letter as a precious treasure, and had run to fetch it, her only treasure, because she did not want me to go away without knowing that she, too, was honestly and genuinely loved, that she, too, was addressed respectfully. No doubt that letter was destined to lie in her box and lead to nothing. 
but nonetheless i am certain that she would keep it all her life as a precious treasure as her pride and justification and now at such a minute she had thought of that letter and brought it with naive pride to raise herself in my eyes that i might see that i too might think well of her i said nothing pressed her hand and went out i so longed to get away i walked all the way home in spite of the fact that the melting snow was still falling in heavy flakes i was exhausted shattered in bewilderment but behind the bewilderment the truth was already gleaming the loathsome truth end of part three